Welcome to the Why on Earth Community Podcast. Today we have the opportunity to visit with Eric Lombardi. Hey Eric. Good to be here, Aaron. Good to be with you today. Good. Eric Lombardi has been working at the cutting edge of the zero waste and social enterprise movements across the world since the mid-1990s. He was a national spokesperson for the first zero waste organization in the United States in 1997 and was a co-founder of the Zero Waste International Alliance in 2002. Eric was invited to the Clinton White House in 1998 as one of the top 100 USA recyclers and received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Colorado Association for Recycling. From 1989 to 2014, he turned a small nonprofit called EcoCycle into the largest zero-waste social enterprise in the United States. Eric is now working as an associate to the Social Enterprise World Forum and promoting hybrid business structures to achieve zero-waste, zero-carbon communities. Eric holds a master's degree in technology and human affairs from Washington University in St. Louis. So Eric, it is uh, such a joy to have this opportunity to visit with you today and we've got, we've got a lot to cover and uh, of course you've had a long and, and really amazingly successful career doing the work that you've been doing with Zero Waste and I thought I'd ask as a way to kind of kick things off, how did you get into all of this in the first place? Well, I've been at it for a while so we've got to go way back to the 1970s. Um, and I remember 1973 when we had the first oil embargo from Saudi Arabia and they cut America off. And that kind of, I, I think I had just got my first car and all of a sudden I couldn't get gas. And I was not an environmentalist in 1973. I was a city kid in Denver. And so that kind of blew me away. It's like, okay, what's going on here? Uh, and then for the next six years, I did some world travel and I found out that I didn't know much about the world. I went overseas, Greece and Europe. And then I came back in 79, the next oil embargo hit, and that's when I realized there's something very big and interesting going on here. And I started studying solar energy, got my first solar job in 1980, and that's uh, almost 50 years ago now, I guess. And, uh, no, 40 years ago, okay. <laughs> well, it depends if you're rounding that's right. the nearest, nearest half century. <laughs> so 40 years ago, I got my first solar job here in Boulder, uh, building solar on houses. Uh, and then I went into water conservation work, and then I went into waste recycling. And that was basically about a 35-year professional career. It's really interesting. I, of course, also have a, a, some background in the waste and the recycling world, and it's fascinating to me that there are a few of us in the country and in the world who know quite a lot about what's going on in the alleyways and with the dumpsters, with the things that are sort of out of sight, out of mind. But the truth is that most of us in America and probably most folks in other uh, countries as well aren't probably thinking a whole lot about what's happening with things once we've discarded them. And some would say that therein lies part of the problem. Right. Um, and, and I'm just curious, in, in this span of the four decades that you've been doing this work, have you observed any change in you know, perceptions and awareness and understanding in the general public? You know, uh, the, the quick answer is yes. I, I think there's a lot more information and people are a lot more aware, um, and that's the good side. Uh, the bad side is we had a flurry of activity and behavior change in the 90s, um, but we haven't gone much further 
past the 1990s for the last 20 years. So uh, yes, the awareness is higher, but behavior change has not matched that level of intellectual connection. And what do you think, what do you think is causing us to sort of stall out or in other words, why after 30, 40 years of the recycling revolution, aren't we further along? Great question, and that gets right to the meat of what I wanted to talk about today. Yeah. Um, because the house is on fire. Let, let's get the context correct here. Yeah. Um, the, the environmental problems that I encountered in the 1970s are nothing compared to what we're talking about today. Yeah. And so we have to increase our level of concern appropriate to the level of threat, and it's as high as it can get at this point. So why aren't we further? Um, I think that first we have to define where are we going and then we can see why aren't we further on each of those things. And I, I after 40 years, have framed the solution to one phrase, Z3, zero carbon, zero waste, and zero population growth. I think that's the agenda for the 21st century. Um, and so I've been in the trenches working with the zero waste, zero carbon part of that phrase. I have not worked with zero population growth. Um, lots of other people are working at it, but again, uh, we're not having great success there in some of the places where we need to. Uh, but I can talk about the zero waste, zero carbon part of this and the challenge. Um, so there is no lack of solutions. We, we've, we, my cohorts for the last 40 years and, and beyond, have been working on solutions to waste and dirty energy for a long time. And so solutions are there. The problem now is political, economic, and social change. That's really where we're all getting stuck. And I do, I have been fortunate to travel the world for decades on these issues. And it's not just America that's stuck. The whole world is stuck. Uh, there's little pockets here and there where they're actually moving forward. Um, and I won't, I don't want to analyze that in particular, but overall, um, the bad trends are getting worse at a time when we have the solutions on, on the shelf ready to go. So we need to talk about why aren't the solutions being done. Um, I think the easy, quick solution is that to say follow the money. You know, who's making money? That's what's happening. And uh, capitalism is a very powerful economic system that has basically taken over the whole planet. And uh, lots of people are talking about how capitalism needs to be reformed right now, and that's a lot of fun because 40 years ago we couldn't, we weren't allowed to talk about that. Now we get to talk about mm -hmm. it. And I guess lecture at business schools, and the students are talking about it, the professors are talking about it, everybody's talking about how capitalism has to be made more kinder and gentler. Um, I'm skeptical um, because the power of capitalism, just as a pure economic system, is really amazing. Um, I call it like the tiger. It's this beautiful beast. And mm. uh, so the beautiful beast needs to have a fence put around it or else it'll eat you. Yep. And we all know that. And so governments do a fair job of putting a fence around the capitalist tiger. Um, but we, the people, are the ones who should be defining where that fence is, how high that fence is, how small the free area the tiger gets to roam is, okay? So that's one of the things that we have to do is we have to understand that the limitations on unfettered capitalism um, are not well defined. Our light just switched off. Don't know why. 
I think our light's okay for the purposes of yeah, like continuing okay. the video. So yeah. So we, um, we had a little uh, act of God there, uh, as some people would like to say, lawyer friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so anyway, so follow the money. Um, capitalism is this powerful force in the world. Um, and so that sort of explains a lot of why we got where we are today, but how are we going to change it? Do we have to change capitalism? Um, okay, yes, and everybody's talking about that, but really what we need to do is we have to understand that communities, the politics of saving ourselves, our planet, the politics requires a new sense of community direction and decision making mm. such that we have permission to change where the fence is around the tiger yeah because right now the peop the tiger is calling the shots the tigers basically controls everything and says where the fence will be and where the fence won't be we have to switch that dynamic so the community say no i want the fence sucked in a little tighter here you know and the tiger can't go there anymore um, and when it comes to zero waste and zero carbon um, the tiger is no longer allowed to produce massively wasteful items that can't be recycled, composted, or reused, mm -hmm. or repaired. Mm -hmm. Okay, that sounds like most people say, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, implementing that is really tough, mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. Uh, and then when it comes to energy, the tiger is no longer allowed to produce energy that emits greenhouse gases. Yeah. Okay, so... Everybody says, yep, that's right, that's what we got to do. Well, how are you going to move the fence in on that so the tiger doesn't get to do that energy anymore? And that's where I talked about community power. I think the community has to intervene in a way that, you know, a lot of people shake their heads at this, but it's kind of like, what if the public owns the energy resources? Yeah. What if the public owns all of the waste that's produced? Yeah. Because if we own the actual stuff that is the issue... It doesn't mean that the government then is going to go into business. It just means then the government has the power and the control to place the fences around waste and energy activities. Mm. And then you let the private sector do their thing, mm -hmm. you know, because you don't want business doing government. They're not, or government doing business. They're no good at that. And you don't want business doing government either. That's a mm. good slip. Um, <laughs> so, so you, but you want government and the com which is nothing more than the community and the community working together saying like the city of boulder and um minneapolis and some other really progressive places have said hey we want to be zero waste by 2035 we want to be 100 percent clean energy by 2030 and these goals are fantastically aspirational technically possible but social social and politically impossible under the system that we're operating under right now mm. but if this climate emergency actually gets discussed as an emergency and the government and the community hand in hand says, okay, all this waste now belongs to the public, which then gives the public the control over what to do with it. And, and if the public says anything that goes to the landfill is going to cost five times more than it costs today, which by the way, we landfill here in Colorado for about 20 bucks a ton. Yeah. The same technology in Italy costs 240 a ton. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's all about policy and taxes and all that. Yeah. So, but you know, you need political will, you need community support to do that. Mm. So I think that we're talking about, you know, intervening on the energy and the waste industries in a way that a lot of people say, oh, that's communism. Stop. You can't do that. Mm. No, it's not really. 
what it is is think of the toy industry in america you're not allowed to build a toy that might hurt a child mm -hmm. is that communism right that's just common sense right, right? right. so that's all we, we need to bring common sense to the table and say no longer can we have dirty energy no longer are we going to produce the stuff of our lives in a way that it gets landfilled or incinerated at the end. It all has to be recycled, composted, reused, repaired. Yeah, that sort of thing. There's a, there's a classical uh, parable in the uh, economics literature that goes back a couple hundred years, which is the tragedy of the commons. And, and this use of this term communism or common sense, it made me think of the commons themselves. And when it comes to things like pollution and how we're doing energy and how we're doing waste, it seems it's, it's an issue of the commons and needs to be treated yeah. as such. Yeah, and, and that's one of the good things I think the internet can help us as a species understand, mm. a, a newer understanding about what the commons are. And we need to stop monetizing the commons, yeah. giving financial value to everything. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. financial value is only one yardstick. Yeah. You know, the triple bottom line has social community benefit environmental benefit and then monetary benefit and that's the reformed capitalism that you're hearing people even like blackrock and all these yeah. other big capitalists say we need to redefine value in yeah. our economy yeah. and uh, so it's a wonderfully exciting time to be alive because the discussions going on are fantastic um, and as a matter of fact that leads me to what i'm doing these days i've evolved from in the trenches zero waste work yeah. and zero carbon work to um, helping create business hybrids like social enterprise that can create a new market for how to bring the technologies out yes. and in partnership with communities and governments. And I'll give you an example in Scotland. Uh, Scotland's a leader in social enterprise right now. They're, they're doing two things that are fantastic. One of them is whole communities in Scotland are starting to build or, or create social enterprises under the name of the town and so the town then builds the windmills and they're owning their own community energy systems. Yeah. Okay? So that's like, you know, taking it, you know, ownership of it. The other thing they've done in Scotland around the waste issue is fascinating. They took a small nonprofit, a zero waste nonprofit that I've known for years, and all of a sudden the government said, you know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. You're trusted by the government and you're trusted by the business sector because you have a foot in each world. Mm -hmm. So we're going to actually make you a quasi-public entity. We're going to fund you to create the Zero Waste Plan to 2035. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be able to use, you're going to be able to structure the plan, the goals, the RFPs, and you're going to get to pick the private mm -hmm. sector entities that will do the work. Yep. And we're going to trust you mm -hmm. because us government, we don't, we're not experts. Mm -hmm. You are. And so all of a sudden you have Zero Waste Scotland, an organization now that's in between the private sector and the government that's sort of creating the plans and putting out the RFPs and basically changing where the fence is on waste in Scotland. Mm -hmm. They're defining it. Are you seeing that same sort of pattern emerging in other uh, regions or communities? No, this, is, this is all in the last three years. So this, this, is, is, this is brand new. Really exciting. This is I, really new. I yeah. want to make sure because many in our audience are chief sustainability officers of various municipalities and uh, businesses and so forth and just want to make sure folks are able to get to this example if they're interested. Is there something they can find online that might have a little more information? So you can go directly to the website of Zero Waste Scotland uh -huh. 
and you'll be able to read about them. Is that dot? I don't know. Okay, it's, well, yeah, I'll, I'll figure it out for the show notes. So, yeah, so Zero Waste Scotland, and what you'll see is, you'll see an organization that doesn't look very revolutionary. Mm -hmm. But if you're in deep enough in the industry, you'll realize how revolutionary it is mm -hmm. that the government actually trusts them enough. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, gov governments are risk adverse. Mm -hmm. The private sector is risk taking. Mm -hmm. And that's where the two have a hard time working together. And so this third entity, this, this enabling institution called Zero Waste Scotland, is listening to both and helping mm -hmm. them reduce their risk and helping them take the appropriate risks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Managing risk when you're doing social change is the key. And I, I love this model of a third party organization. I don't, it doesn't even have a name yet, the concept. I've been reading and I've been trying to find anybody else doing this. Um, it needs a name, it needs a concept because this trust from both sectors for a body of uh, organization that has the intelligence and the uh, bandwidth to be able to negotiate both risks side of Yeah. Well, maybe something just comes to mind real quick. Instead of tragedy of commons, it's trust of commons or commons trust or something like that that could get well, attached to the concept. You're absolutely right. The word trust plays here mm -hmm. because, you know, not only do we have to learn how to trust people again, we also have to learn how to share. Mm -hmm. So these simple concepts are going to get us through this challenging time we're in right now. So, yeah. um, because the other thing about social enterprise is, okay, if a private sector industry comes into this universe and negotiates with Zero Waste Scotland, Zero Waste Scotland has reduced their risk of failure and thus asks them to reduce their demands for profit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yep. everybody likes that yep. Yep. because that's what I mean about sharing. Yep. So the government is going to share the risk with the marketplace, mm -hmm. thus they get a lower profit. Most companies will say, that's fine. Sure. Lower my risk, I'll take a lower return. Yeah. Just let's stay in the game. Yeah. Keep me in business. So that's a key here too, is the trust thing and the sharing of the risk thing enables change to happen in the marketplace. And you, that's what's missing right now. You know, I'm so struck, Eric, and, and so much of this has to do with economics and not only the mechanisms of economics, but really the, the constructs and the belief systems that we've established around economics and what's considered to be normal and what's considered not to be normal. Yeah. And, and I'm struck that so much innovation occurred around the time of the Renaissance after the Crusades brought this massive influx of wealth into Europe and particularly many of the Italian city-states and public finance emerged out of that. So many structures wow. that we take for granted now as being normal. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the phenomena at play in our country in particular, in the United States in particular, is that we, because we're uh, an amalgamation of people from all around the world, we sort of have this collective amnesia when it comes to wisdom that goes back hundreds upon hundreds of years. And many of us are running around with this perception that the current economic methods or ways of doing things are the only ways that we could possibly be doing things. We don't have a long enough memory to understand that, heck, these were just experiments a couple hundred years ago or a few hundred years ago. And I've heard it said more than once that uh, free market capitalism is the fastest growing religion in the world. And this is one of the things I think it's incumbent on each of us as participants in our world, participants in the economy, 
to really develop an understanding that so many of the rules of the game are simply inventions and constructs that have right. emerged over the last several centuries. That's right. And therefore, we really need to spend time thinking about what are the next better set uh -huh. of constructs. And I know you're doing a lot of your thinking around that. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, when you're working on the, the social enterprise models, what are you seeing in addition to this public-private partnership around, uh, around zero waste in the commons? Are there other patterns or recommendations or insights that seem to be emerging? Yes, there are. Um, just today I was on the phone with the executive director of an incredible organization in Canada called Bisocial Bi Canada. Mm -hmm. And there's also a Bisocial uh, UK, there's a Bisocial Bi Australia. I mean, this is sort of a global movement that's starting. And mm -hmm. what it does is it's basically saying that if the marketplace is a big pie, and that's sort of unfettered capitalist marketplace. We're, we're, we want a piece of that pie and we want to pull it out and put a fence around it mm -hmm. so the tiger can't get there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> tiger okay. has the rest of the pie. The, the tiger exclusion zone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we pull a piece of the market out yeah. and we're going to, and we're calling that the social value marketplace. Okay. And that's truly a triple bottom line world. Yeah. And we're finding governments and corporations. Yeah want to be there because they get it yeah that's beautiful they understand if you're going to spend local tax dollars and you can get more value for that buck than just financial if you can actually help local unemployment if you could actually clean up the local environment with that same dollar yeah of course you're going to do that mm -hmm. so this social value marketplace there's a lot of corporations that want to give their contracts to triple bottom line companies. Yep. There's governments that want to support local triple bottom line expansion. And so we'd like, we're, we're, we're defining that piece of the pie right now Beautiful. and trying to come up with standards Beautiful. to lower the risk of the corporations and government to bring in a triple bottom line company who may financially cost a little bit more, sure. but brings you all this social and environmental benefit. Yep. So they need to be able to have their risk lowered to do that. Yeah. So that Absolutely means, beautiful. you know, so, so it's really taking off. This whole social enterprise and bi-social thing is really creating a new marketplace. So I'm curious, you know, we've um, already begun collaborating with a handful of B corporations out there and B certified organizations. Uh, Patagonia is a great example. They're one of our favorites and there are plenty of others. Um, is there a, quite a bit of overlap yet with these, these initiatives and movements that you're working with and the the B Corp world of businesses? It's kind of interesting that you mention that. So imagine uh, concentric circles, yeah. one, two, three. Yeah. In the center of that, the bullseye, yeah. is a, what we call the purest social enterprise. Yeah. And I'll explain what that is in a, in a second. But then outside that is the second ring, and outside it, that is the third ring. In the middle, so the, the middle is the gold standard. Okay. doesn't mean ring two and three are bad. It just means they're not as really focused. Yeah. Okay, so a focused social enterprise is an organization that was created to address a social or environmental problem. Mm -hmm. Patagonia was not. Most of B Corps are not created mm -hmm. to address a problem. They're created to just go into business, and they've pledged to be clean and pledged to do business fairly, and do, they pledge to be good guys. Yeah. But they don't exist to solve a problem. So there are companies that exist to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I can give you an example. Well, you know, uh, there's a toilet paper company out of Australia. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's 
Who Gives a Crap is the name of their... Yeah, I've heard of these guys. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's great. So why great do they work. exist? They exist to build sanitary toilet systems in Africa. They sell a quality to toilet paper, yeah. right? And but their pitch is buy it, you're gonna buy it, buy it from us. Yeah. Right. Because all our profits go to Africa to build toilets. Yeah. That's a business that exists not to get rich, but it exists to create the revenue stream to build toilets in Africa. Yeah. That's the purest kind of social enterprise. Cool. Now to be one of those, you have to agree to certain things, and this is the global standards I told you is emerging. One of them is a double asset lock, and what an asset lock means is that at least 51% of the profits have to go to the mission. Usually it's much, it's 100% or 80%, but no more than 49% can go back to investors or owners, okay? Yep. And the second asset lock is there's no exit strategy for like a venture capitalist. Yep. If the company sells, it's like nonprofits in the United States, the organization assets have to go to another social enterprise. Yeah, cool. So the asset lock is a high bar that a lot of venture capitalists won't touch. Yeah, because they right. want an exit strategy. Of course. So the only money that goes into a true social enterprise is truly mission-driven money. Yeah. Okay. So that's why it's the gold standard in the middle. Is and then, that an actual certification? Is there a third-party body that's verifying that? There is. There's one in the UK called the Social Enterprise Mark. Okay. Um, that was the first and the most rigid. Now Australia is coming up with one with the guy in Canada I was just talking to. Those two have come up with one that's very similar. Yeah. And I am just now talking with some people in the United States to create a bisocial USA program. Cool. In partnership with all these others. Okay. Kind of a global thing. Um, so that's yes, great. there will be a third-party certification. I love it. For that gold standard. Are you are you seeing significant uh, capital, social capital, showing up to fund these sorts of enterprises? Um, not yet, because most of the these enterprises are what are called SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises. Yeah. And so SMEs don't have uh, a lot of upside. SMEs are usually small, like in Denver there's a cafe that exists just to train women who just got out of prison. Yeah. And you can work there for a year, or the Women's Bean Project, you can work there for a year, you get training, all this, but then you got to move on, because mm -hmm. it's really set up as a training for you. Not a lot of capital available, not a lot of capital needed, okay? It could get bigger. I mean, mm -hmm. she's in talking to the director of corrections for Colorado right now about expanding mm -hmm. all throughout the state. Cool. Um, but no, this kind of social, this kind of money hasn't moved significantly yet. Mm -hmm. I think there's real opportunity for it too. Because mm -hmm. remember, I'm talking about a for-profit business. Sure. sure. Who gives money to for-profits? Right, mm -hmm. people who want big returns. Right. So we, the foundations are starting to go towards these, and they can give money. They can give a grant to a for-profit under this thing called a PRI, program-related yeah. investment. Yeah. PRIs are starting to get a lot more buzz. Mm -hmm. Bill Gates got on it. Bill yeah. Gates said, "Hey, I can give a million dollars to a nonprofit, and they need a million every year, or I can give a million dollars to a small business." and watch them become self-sufficient, mm -hmm. you know? And so he just created a billion dollar PRI fund cool. to help social enterprises around the world. Mm -hmm. So it's slowly happening. All this stuff's pretty new, you know? Right. It's really cutting edge right now. So I think it's there, but let me finish the concentric circles yeah, because perfect. not everybody can be uh, the gold standard. Mm -hmm. Your second ring is like, EcoCycle was a nonprofit social enterprise. Mm -hmm. It means that we, are not a private business and so we can't have investors 
And in fact, that was a great frustration of mine running EcoCycle. Mm-hmm. I wanted to build a compost facility and I couldn't get $6 million. Yeah. If I'd been private, I probably could have gotten an investor. Mm-hmm. So the second ring is your nonprofit social enterprises. Mm-hmm. And your third ring is the B Corps. Yep. Good, good guys, good folks doing good work, but they're not as mission driven as the bullseye, yep. the social enterprise bullseye. This is okay. beautiful, it's very helpful. We might even, uh, I don't want to overpromise, but we might even yeah. play around with getting a little uh, example of the diagram up in the show notes okay. when we publish the episode. Okay. Let me uh, just take a quick minute to give a big shout out to some of our sponsors. And uh, this includes Patagonia, Purium, and the Lidge Family Foundation. And uh, you can find links to Purium on the whyonearth.org website, as well as uh, Patagonia. And I also want to give a huge shout out to the growing number of people who have joined our monthly giving program through the Why on Earth community. And if you haven't yet joined, you can go to whyonearth.org support and sign up at any level you would like. Now we have a very special uh, program going with Waylay Waters, which makes premium uh, hemp infused aromatherapy soaking salts. And if you give at a $33 a month level or higher, uh, you can get monthly shipments of these soaking salts as a token of gratitude for your support of the Why on Earth community. So uh, you can go to whyonearth.org slash community slash waylay dash waters, and I'll put this in the show notes uh, to get more information on that part of the program. And uh, this is just a great way. It's win-win-win. This is an example of uh, emerging models for regenerative economy. And it, uh, we know from more and more friends and family that uh, these soaking salts really do help uh, relieve aches and pains and arthritic uh, stresses and all that kind of stuff. So it's worth trying out. Um, I also want to be sure to mention uh, Eric has been speaking about EcoCycle. Uh, you can get information about EcoCycle at EcoCycle.org. And uh, the Social Enterprise World Foreman we haven't yet hit on, but that's going to be um, another website we'll have in the show notes. Uh, and we'll also have a link to Eric's uh, LinkedIn account in case you'd like to see more about his bio and learn more about his background and the work that he's doing. Um, so I think that wraps up our quick public service announcement. Thanks again to everybody supporting this uh, Why on Earth community podcast, as well as all of our community mobilization work around the country and internationally for climate action, soil regeneration, and culture of kindness. And uh, Eric, uh, getting back to uh, this model with the, the three levels of the concentric circles, it's, I love it, it's very helpful to visualize that. And um, I'm, I'm wondering, as you're looking at what's emerging in different countries, are you seeing that the rate of development and capital allocation is uh, moving differently among these three different uh, camps? Yeah, um, not yet. It's not evolved quite far enough to see that. Um, I would like to, I think there's more and more money coming into the B Corp world, which yeah. is wonderful. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to see more money coming into the center, to the nonprofits and to the true social enterprises in the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, because all when all three are successful, then we're growing that new piece of the pie out of the marketplace, the social value marketplace. Yes. And there's a lot of talk about values these days. Yeah. Well, 
you know, the rubber hits the road when it comes to money and values. Yeah, and uh, cities are waking up. David in Canada just told me his uh, organization by Social Canada is being asked more and more to do consulting and handholding uh-huh. for cities on how to spend their budgets. Yeah. So that there's more value, value for money, VF. M, value for money, the uh-huh. UK. The UK has been doing a lot of this good work for 10, 12 years now. Cool. They're, they're the leader. We're watching the UK, especially Scotland. And uh, <laughs> little Scotland, they're amazing. Um, well, they, they've had a lot innovative. of big impact on the world over the centuries, right? That's where a little, <laughs> little fellow named Adam Smith wrote this thing called Wealth of Nations. Is that right? Okay. Helped, helped spawn the uh, global uh, capitalist marketplace we're using all around the world now. Well, we need a new Adam Smith out of Scotland. He's, yeah. he's rewriting the Wealth of Nations. Yeah. I mean, I really believe that, you know, there's two big things happening in my mind right now and where I put my time. Number one is climate change. Yeah. And I think that changing the marketplace, as Paul Hawkins said, we don't have to save the earth. Right. We have to save business because business is what's killing the earth. Right. Okay. And uh, I, I really think changing the marketplace is going to have the biggest impact. And the second place is uh, freedom and democracy. I mean, yeah. I, we need better leaders yeah. to be elected in our country and in the world. And uh, so what I've been working on in, a, in the United States for that is called ranked choice voting. Cool. as the way to sort of bust the monopoly uh, red-blue politics we have going on right now, because getting a third party is tough. Right. individual who's an independent and has big ideas, and with ranked choice voting, you can vote for that person without wasting your vote, mm-hmm. because then if they don't win, your second choice goes to the Democrat. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ralph Nader in the year 2000 is a great example. You know, Nader was talking about getting corporations in line, a lot of us voted for him, and it ended up really hurting Al Gore. Mm-hmm. With ranked choice, we could have all voted for Nader. If he lost, our next choice would have been Gore. Gore would have won. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't have been throwing our vote away, but we would have been sending a message. We like the message this guy's mm-hmm. saying. Interesting. So let's empower these individuals with good ideas. Even if they don't win, they'll give a, they'll give a scare uh-huh. on the red-blue camps. Sure. So yep. ranked yep. choice, keep an eye on that right now. I think it's really important. That's great. That's great to hear about. Um, I want to ask Eric. I, I I can't, you know, help help myself having, uh, as I mentioned, a bit of a background in the the trash and the recycling world. It's struck me over the years that with all of the innovation in recycling per se, a, a major part of the issue is the materials themselves in the first place and what's going into these uh, product streams and packaging streams. Mm-hmm. And I'm really excited about some of the emerging trends in materials, mm-hmm. um, getting back to more biodegradable uh, packaging, for example. I, I'm wondering, as you're uh, connected to different efforts and organizations all around the world, are you seeing things in the materials realm that is giving you hope and or a way of thinking a bit differently about some of these supply chains? You know, um I had a lot more hope 20 years ago mm-hmm. when, when we had the paper industry, the glass industry, the plastics industry, and the metals industry all at the table at the National Recycling Coalition where I was an executive board member. And we had them at the table and we had meaningful discussions and they understood that they needed to make their products recyclable and they had to use recycled content to make their products. Mm-hmm. So the 90s were really the height of that discussion. When Bush came in, we lost the EPA and we lost their bully pulpit. Mm. And that so the industries just faded away. 
mm. because the EPA wasn't cracking the whip on them anymore. And these big corporations, they don't have to stay at the table if they don't want to. Yeah. So we need somebody to crack the whip on them and say, you got to come back to this table. Mm. You got to talk to us because, you know, you, you, these big corporations have three, four different ways of doing what they do. Sure. It can be greener or dirtier on the spectrum. Yeah. And they're going to do it the cheapest. Mm-hmm. Unless the government or the, through the, the community through the government says, no, you're not. Uh, we need to get that back. Under Obama, unfortunately, even his EPA didn't come back and help us much. He was mm-hmm. so busy saving the economy, I guess. Um, but mm-hmm. we didn't see much movement there either. Now, I will say... Paper, metals, and glass mm-hmm. are in reasonable shape for recycling. Mm-hmm. It's the plastics that's the problem. Yep. That the plastics is the dragon right now that's just torching everybody with their fire. Yep. And they've been doing it since the 90s. They, they were the least uh, helpful partner in the 90s as well, the yep. plastics industry. You know, and even setting aside, if we were, if we were to ch- achieve more of a closed loop with plastics, Yeah with reuse yeah i mean we still have a massive build-up problem in the oceans and there's a lot of toxicity in plastic supply streams yeah even if even if we're getting much more use out of any given pound of plastic yeah i just that's right it it, it seems that as a, a class of materials plastics have extraordinary challenges attached to them and of course they're they're incredibly innovative i mean our, our space program wouldn't be what it is without plastics right yeah. there's a lot to be grateful for in a sense in terms of what we've accomplished in the 20th century but going forward one of the things we clearly have to be doing uh, in our environment in our agriculture in our supply chains is getting these toxins out because we have essentially uh, toxified the the biosphere yeah that's like i said it's a dragon mm-hmm. and it's really tough to beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that if your viewers don't know, in Europe they have a law called the precautionary principle. Yep. And I urge you to re- go to Wikipedia or somewhere and read about it because what the precautionary principle in Europe tells industry, it's one of the rules, you have to prove it's safe before you get to sell it. Yep. In America we do it the other way. Yep. You can produce and sell anything you want until it's proven dangerous. Yeah, and even okay. then we might let you continue for another 10, 20 years. Exactly, or forever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so we got to flip that, and we have to follow Europe, Europe's lead. Um, because they also, after the precautionary principle was passed, then they created a chemical law called REACH. Yeah. And, and REACH did just what you said. It looked at the toxicity of the stuff of our lives. Yeah. And it's, it actually out, outlawed certain chemicals. Just boom, yeah. gone. You know? And that's what we need more of. We need more, I, you know, I hate to say it, it's authoritarian control on behalf of community benefit. Well, it's a protection of the commons, right? That's it's, right. It's, it's protection <laughs> of the commons. That's right. Yeah, that requires so, a different mechanism. So, precautionary principle and reach are two yeah. examples that the United States and the rest of the world needs to follow. Yeah. Um, and again, that's a steep mountain to climb. Well, Because I was in Europe when those were even passed. Yeah. And guess who was there fighting them? The American Business Chamber of Commerce. Right. right. Fighting them. And yeah, so I, disheartening. I explore the uh, precautionary principle a bit in the uh, second section of the book, Why on Earth? So for any of you out there who haven't yet uh, gotten its ebook and audiobook, you can order a printed copy if you prefer that. Um, there's a bit of a discussion in there around the precautionary principle. And again, here in the United States, as a function, it seems, of the fact that we've had this convergence of cultures from all around the world, we haven't had some of the built-in cultural safety mechanisms that would 
cause precaution to be the order of the day. Right. And so as a society, we have to uh, actively uh, implement those kinds of mechanisms in, in the frameworks of the economy and, and policy and so mm -hmm. forth. Mm -hmm. You're right. It's a cultural shift, especially for America, because yeah. we've always been an expansionistic Oh, there's another commons on the other side of that mountain. That's right. You know, so we can, well, we no longer have that. So I think that that's the reason we have to get back to science-based discussions too. Right. Is because, you know, science isn't necessarily a cultural phenomenon. It's it's right. science. Right. And uh, so if we can build, like we did recycling expansion in the local schools, we were forced to make them very science-based classes. Yeah. Because we had political opposition at the school board level. Interesting. So it's like, no, no, we're science-based, totally science-based, you know, and that's that was our cover. Yeah, very interesting. And it was true. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's clearly um, of great importance. And I, you know, I have found in a lot of the community work we've been doing in different regions of the country, red, blue, purple, that we've created these false divides ideologically. So in some communities, science is almost this kind of bad word. And, yeah. you know, in other communities, I would say maybe it's even overplayed a little bit. But the bottom line is that we're seeing horrible rates of cancer, for example, as a result of these toxins in our agriculture, in our water, in our waste streams. And that it really is about all of us becoming healthier in our own homes, in our own families, a lot of these issues that are being worked on by people like you, Eric. And my hope is that as we're having more of these kinds of discussions, we're going to be able to, as a society, choose more health in our lives and in our communities, regardless of uh, political ideology. Right. And um, so I, I think it's so important that we're having these kinds of conversations. Yeah, I think what you're doing is very important. Uh, media communications is very, very broken right now. Yeah. And it's divide. It's breaking the rest of society, yeah. and so we need to get communications back to a place where it's not full of emotion and opinion, but it's more science fact, and it's for all of us. Yeah, truly, I agree. Truly, so we've got a few minutes, um, and there's no rush to wrap up. But I, I want to make sure we get to Social Enterprise World Forum, uh, just to be able to share a little with the audience about what what that is and, mm -hmm. and what your connection is with them. Um, so it comes out of Scotland. It was started in 2008. In fact, I was invited to be one of the speakers at the first one in Scotland. Uh, and there was a group of 500 people from around the world. There were seven Americans. Oh my gosh. And I got there and looked around and went, what's happening here? <laughs> and uh, the CEO from the Royal Bank of Scotland was a keynote speaker. So the biggest bank in Scotland, the CEO got up there and he said, the size of our environmental and social problems today are so big that the government can't solve them, the market won't solve them, not a profit in it, and nonprofits are a band-aid. We need a new way forward, a new fourth way. And here's this bank president talking like a Marxist. <laughs> I mean, I was just stunned. And so I've been watching this group ever since. And, and when I left EcoCycle a few years ago, I called the guy who ran the forum and I said, look, I just got to beat your form every year because this is where it's happening in my mind that the growth of this movement is that important so he brought me in and I'm an associate now and so you know we've been in New, Ze New Zealand and uh, last um, Edinburgh last year I was in Addis Ababa Africa next year we're gonna be in Halifax Canada basically it's 1500 people coming from let's see we had 60 nations last year in Africa 
um, again, we only had 20 Americans. Mm. 1,500 people, 20 Americans. Wow. So it really, wow. are, we're way behind on this mm -hmm. one. Um, I'm trying to get the troops to show up at Halifax because you can take it, you know, it's closer. <laughs> uh, you can drive there. If you're you right. can drive there. <laughs> um, and, and, and actually, I just helped uh, Jerry, the founder, create a mandatory carbon offset for all air travel to the conference. Oh. So now that's going to be part of the registration fee. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, and actually, we're working on going every other year virtual face-to-face, -face, virtual face-to-face, -face, come back. But at the beginning of a movement, you got to get together with people, yep. and that's what we're finding. So yeah, we're going to be in Halifax in September, late September next year. Everybody's invited. You, it is the most exciting group of people you'll ever meet. Uh, these are social. These are entrepreneurs who are starting businesses to solve problems, not to make money. Mm -hmm. All the money they make goes right back into the mission, and uh, they're all ages. They're all colors. Uh, it's really, really an exciting movement right now. We're trying to create a new uh, capitalism, in a way, mm -hmm. absolutely beautiful marketplace. Yeah. Is there much of a media effort coming out of Social Enterprise World Forum in terms of disseminating and sharing discussions and discoveries and, and things that are getting Not, activated? No, it's a very okay. small organization, and yeah. that probably needs to be beefed up. Yeah. They, there is plenty of that goes on in the host country when it travels. Uh -huh. um, we single-handedly created a huge tidal wave in New Zealand when we went there. Mm. And now New Zealand is on board. Mm. Um, Addis Ababa last fall, Africa, Ethiopia is like charging now. Mm. And so they're getting, so wherever we go, government officials come, we raise the consciousness in mm. the location. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the limited. Well, we cool. need more, we well, need we, more outreach on it. We certainly right. have some friends in our on our global advisory board and in our ambassador network that might be able to help with some of the additional media and communications opportunities. And we're, we're seeing this need in a lot of different efforts. Um, some amazing, beautiful things are happening among, you know, a few thousand folks over here, a few yeah. thousand folks over here, and the leadership that's emerging is yeah. absolutely transformational. Yeah. And we want to amplify that. Yeah, I, that's awesome. That's so, awesome. Yeah, good, good work. Cool, Eric. Well, I am just so thrilled that uh, we've had the opportunity to sit and visit today. And uh, before we sign off, is there is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience or anything you didn't get a, a chance to mention yet? Not really. I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, don't beat yourself up individually if you're not leading the leading the greenest life possible. Mm. This problem is so much bigger than the individual that we all have to come together now for systemic change. Mm -hmm. So politics is as important as anything else you're doing. So don't don't take the industry wants you to feel bad about how you live. Mm -hmm. Don't don't take it. Mm -hmm. Let's go change politics and politics changes them. Beautiful. Well great. Well thanks so much Eric. My pleasure. So good to thanks, be here. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. 
If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.